Chapter 40, Pendlewinkle's Plan I had a lot of time to think, Perry, as I sat in my jail cell. I must have run through the events of that night a thousand times. I imagine you did as well. As I said before, I can only remember bits and pieces of the evening, just small fragments here and there, little moments. I remember being at work late that afternoon and leaving not long after five o'clock. It was a Friday, I remember that. I was anxious to get my weekend started. I remember grabbing a pint with a couple of fellows from the office, Morton, Cranley, and maybe Percy and Phil, if memory serves, he said. Yes, this was all recounted during the trial a number of times, Perry said with little patience. But what was not mentioned during the trial was something I remembered a few weeks afterward, something that happened much later in the evening. Of course, it seemed to matter very little once I was already in prison. I could not appeal my case for some time, and so I was left to try to piece together a story of my own from the events of the evening. I see, said Perry. So you've brought me here to tell me your theory about what really happened, is that right? What, in hopes that I'll be convinced by your tale and go to the authorities, that I'd work to have you released? Be reasonable, Marcus. That's never going to happen. You're only part right, Perry, Marcus responded. Yes, I do want to tell you my theory of what really happened that night. But it's not in hopes that you'll believe me or that you'll go to the authorities. That's the last thing I'd expect of you. I'm telling you my theory because it has a great deal to do with you and the web of lies you've weaved to paint me as a villain. But the funny thing is, Perry, I'm not the villain. Quite the opposite, actually. The real villain, old friend, is you. Perry Penderwinkle bristled when he heard these words. He did not like the implication, though he tried to remain impassive as he listened to Marcus's speech. If Perry did not tread carefully, this house of cards he'd built would all too easily come tumbling down. Don't be absurd. He said dismissively, If you're looking for a scapegoat, you'll not find one here, Marcus. Ingram looked at Penderwinkle and thought that he noticed just a tinge of defensiveness in him. Maybe, just maybe, he'd finally hit a nerve. It was the first glimpse of honesty he'd seen from Penderwinkle since his capture. You see, Perry, I said before that I remembered being at the pub drinking for quite some time, and the last thing I could recall was paying my tab at the bar before leaving. And that was true. But then one day, about a month or so after the end of my trial, I remembered more from that evening. I don't know why. Maybe a sound or smell or some other thing triggered the memory. But the point is, I remembered. I remembered stumbling out of the pub... It had been a good hour or so, I think, since everyone else had left. It was just me, alone, when I stumbled out of the bar. There was a moment where I vaguely remember trying to call a cab, but whether it was due to my drunkenness or some other reason, that never happened. Sometimes I think of how different my life would be if I'd just hopped in a cab and headed home, Marcus said wistfully. And so I walked stumbling my way back toward my place. This part's a bit spotty. I don't remember all of it, but I do remember certain landmarks. The courthouse, the bank, walking through the park. Listen up now, Perry. 
he said, suddenly more focused. Here's where you come in. Penderwinkle shifted nervously in his chair, afraid to hear what was coming next. A growing sense of dread was coming over him. As I made my way out of the park, which I think I must have been lost in for quite some time, I came out onto the main road, and I saw your street. That's where old Perry lives, I said to myself, and as if I'd summoned you forth, you rounded the corner, coming from the direction of your flat. I don't know which of us was more surprised to see the other. Even in my drunken state, however, I could see that something troubled you. You were agitated, and you seemed startled to see me. Perry could feel the blood draining out of his face as he listened. He remembered this moment as well, though, until now, he thought he was the only one who'd had any memory of it. Marcus was indeed drunk. He was so intoxicated that when he spoke, Perry couldn't make heads or tails of what he was saying. And he kept closing his eyes as if he was going to fall asleep right there on the sidewalk. Yes, Perry remembered this, and also what came after. But until this moment, this rendezvous had been a secret known only to Perry Penderwinkle. It seemed at last that the secret was out. Chapter 41, Nissen's Nemesis Cranley pulled his car over to the side of the street, assured by Nissen that they were far enough away from Philippa's apartment that she'd not be able to see them from here. It had been Mr. Cranley's idea to pay a visit to Philippa's place first, though Nissen had urged him to go straight to the house in Gravesend, but Nissen had been assured that this was the best course of action. Martin, at least, was familiar with this place, but the house in Gravesend was a complete unknown to both of them. They did not even know for certain that Penderwinkle was being held there, though both admitted that it seemed the most likely place. Marcus Ingram will be hard enough to catch on his own, and I'd rather not have to deal with both him and his sister in the same place. There's a chance that we could catch them separately, which would be to our advantage. Also, this sister of his may be able to tell us more about this house that Marcus is staying in, and whether or not it's where Penderwinkle's been held. I should say, also, that this woman is not an agent, and faced with the possibility of arrest, she may tell us all we need to know, Cranley concluded. All that he said made sense to Martin Nesson, but it did mean twice as many dangerous encounters, as opposed to one terrifying exchange with their enemies. Do you see her car? Cranley asked. Nissen scanned the street, and it took only a few seconds for his response. Yes, there it is, the Buick, three cars up across the street, he said. Very good, Cranley replied, seeming satisfied. It's safe to assume that she's here. Let's just hope she's alone. Nissen sat in the passenger seat, collecting himself as Cranley reached into a bag in the back seat and pulled out a small black pistol. Nesson's eyes went wide. He watched as Cranley put a silencer on the end of the gun's barrel, then tucked the weapon in a holster hidden under his suit jacket. Cranley gave Nesson a serious look. Have you ever shot a gun before, Martin? I haven't, Nesson replied. Not even held one before. Am I... I mean, do I need one? He asked sheepishly. No, Cranley replied quickly. If you've never handled a weapon before, I'd be a fool to give you one now. You'd do more harm than good, I'm afraid. 
I don't need to be dodging friendly fire if things get hairy up there. Now, unless there's something else you need to do before we head up, I think it's time we go. Nesson nodded, slowly opening his door and exiting the car as he watched Cranley hop out nonchalantly and make his way over to the sidewalk. Just stick close to me, Martin. It'll all be over before you know it, he said as they walked down the block toward Philippa Ingram's apartment. It'll all be over before you know it, Martin Nesson thought. Never have those words seemed so ominous. They reached the building's front door, and Cranley buzzed an apartment number at random. A man's voice answered, sounding more than a bit annoyed. Yeah, what is it? he barked. Locked out. Apartment 3B, Cranley answered in a casual voice. The front door buzzed loudly in response. They were in. The irony was not lost on Nesson that they'd just used the same trick Philippa had, but now it was her apartment that was being broken into. Cranley made a beeline for the elevator, which, to Nesson's delight, no longer had an out-of-service sign hanging in front of it. At least they'd not be climbing the eight flights of steps. Small victories, Nesson thought. They hit the up button and waited in silence until the doors opened, and a young woman with a small red-haired Pomeranian exited the elevator. She smiled politely at them, and the dog ran to Cranley's feet, licking his shoes before its owner pulled it away by the leash. Nesson and Cranley entered the cramped, dirty elevator and hit eight as the doors squeaked closed. Cranley pulled back one side of the jacket and placed a wary hand on his pistol. When the doors open, wait until I tell you to come out, he instructed. Ten seconds later, there was a chime and the elevator doors opened revealing the all-too-familiar hallway that led to Philippa Ingram's apartment. Cranley stepped out cautiously, then motioned for Martin to follow. He looked back at Martin, who pointed at the apartment one door down to their right. The man nodded, then crept up until he was standing directly in front of the door. Nesson said a silent prayer, and then he watched with great anxiety as Cranley reached out and rang the doorbell of Philippa Ingram's apartment. Chapter 42, Perry Petitioned I'm sure it was you that I saw, Marcus said. Perry did not answer, but only stared back at his captor in silence. Perhaps the next part of my story will jog your memory, Marcus suggested. There we both were, out on the street, and it must have been close to midnight. I suggested we go back to your flat for another drink, since it was just up the block, but you would have none of it. I couldn't figure out why. You told me Marjorie wasn't feeling well. Do you remember that, Perry? Well, that was an understatement, wasn't it? How dare you? Perry spat through gritted teeth. Ignoring him, Marcus went on. But I seem to remember that I kept insisting we go back to your place. That, I suppose, is when you made up your mind. You decided you'd found your scapegoat, and you knew I was the obvious choice. I was so drunk I could hardly stand up straight and I could barely string two sentences together. You finally relented and told me we'd go back to your place, I think, and have a nightcap. But when we got back to your building, you conveniently remembered you were out of alcohol. You gave me your keys as I was too drunk to make the trip with you to the liquor store down the block and promised you'd be back in a few minutes. I went upstairs, discovered Marjorie, and passed out, I guess. Then you arrived a few minutes later 
to find your wife dead and your dear friend passed out in the same room. When I awoke, I was holding the gun that shot her, and the rest we both know. Agents arrived, and I was arrested, Marcus said. It was you who killed Marjorie, not me, or anyone else for that matter. Perry's face was ashen, and his gaze was fixed on a point on the wall behind Marcus. When Marcus had finished speaking, Perry sat for a moment, unmoving, before realizing that Marcus had finished his story. He looked back at Marcus with an unreadable expression on his face. Was it anger? Sadness? Relief? Maybe it was a mixture of all three, but Marcus could not know for sure. Then Penderwinkle spoke. So is this what it's all been about, Marcus? Justice? Revenge? I can't blame you, of course, but I can't undo what's already been done, Perry said, weariness in his voice. So he admitted it. He'd been nearly certain of it, but hearing Penderwinkle acknowledge it was like a weight off of his chest. Marcus Ingram was no murderer. But why, Perry? What happened that night with Marjorie? Why did you kill her? Marcus asked. That, Marcus, is very complicated and not an easy question to answer, Perry said in return. I did not want to do it, you understand. But Marjorie forced my hand. She made a choice, a regrettable choice, that ultimately led to her death. She was just as responsible for her own death as I was. It's just that I'm the one of us that's still left, and dealing with the guilt and grief of her death every day. In spite of it all, Marcus, I did love her. Marcus could hear the regret in Penderwinkle's voice as he spoke about his deceased wife, about her death, but he could not understand what Perry meant when he said she was just as responsible for her own death as I was. We've got nothing but time, Perry. I've no place to be, and at the moment, neither do you. So please, for once, why don't you try telling the truth? Ingram asked. Perry thought very hard for a moment, finally deciding to tell Ingram what he wanted to know. He'd already admitted his guilt, so he may as well tell him what happened leading up to Marjorie's death. Only one other person had ever heard the story, and Perry thought that maybe sharing the secret with another person would be cathartic. He'd spent his entire profession keeping secrets, and to his credit, he'd never let it get to him, for the most part. But this... This was a secret that ate away at him, and the longer he kept it to himself, the greater it wore on his conscience. It would be nice to tell someone. There had always been great relief for Perry in confession. Very well, Marcus. I'll do as you ask. But as I said, it's a long story. I'm not quite sure where to begin, Perry said. Well, that's simple. At the beginning, of course. Marcus quipped with a self-satisfied grin plastered on his face. Ignoring Marcus's comment, Perry cleared his throat to speak, and thus began Penderwinkle's account of the events leading up to the death of his late wife, Marjorie Penderwinkle.